they were doing this project where they were infusing their gin with all kinds of stuff. So like they even infused it with a Big Mac. So you're kind of like, uh, this is questionable. A lot of like seafood type things like prawn infused vodka. You know what I mean? Where you're like shrimp infused vodka. Like this is, uh, the extra pack of peanuts travel podcast. Episode 438, with 17.6 liters of pure alcohol consumed per year per person, Belarus consumes the most alcohol of any country in the world. And in fact, the top six are all former Soviet republics, Moldova, Lithuania, Russia, Romania, and Ukraine. A lot of quantity. Not sure about the quality. Back in my old life, August, and specifically the end of August, always spelled a season of transition. So there are pros and cons to this, and it was a bit of a juggling act. You know, summer was ending, and when I was a student, that meant the carefree days of summer were ending. When I was a teacher, that meant the days of traveling were ending. But then on the positive side, I was getting to go back to school and I was going to get to challenge myself educationally and mentally and fulfill that side of my curiosity, my educational curiosity. And so there were pros and cons to it, but I always felt that I was giving up something to get the other. But now, thanks to the day and age that we live in, you don't have to do that. You can actually further your education. You can challenge yourself educationally while getting to live the life of travel that you want. And no one does it better than Oregon State eCampus. They're ranked number five in the nation by US News and World Report. They have tons of programs, actually over 70 online programs that you can choose from. You can get your advanced degree in that. You can get your bachelor's degree, everything from psychology, Spanish, environmental science, you name it. They've got a program for it. And you can check out all the programs that fit. So if you're someone who's like, I don't want to give up the travel lifestyle, but I definitely want to continue my education, there's no better place to do it than Oregon State eCampus. You can check everything out at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash peanuts. If you use our link, we get some love from the OSU people. Maybe they'll send us a free Oregon State Beavers hat. I love, love, love that mascot. You can check it out, ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash peanuts. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches people how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and joining me today is someone who is the official bartender of Instagram's Las Vegas event alongside Wyclef Jean, and who since quitting her job as a middle school home ec teacher in 2013 has been able to blend her multiple passions in her career better than maybe anyone else I've seen. I use career like in air quotes because... When you get to do stuff that you have so much fun on it, I guess it's a career, but job in air quotes. Natalie Migliorini from beautifulbooze.com. Natalie, 
Thanks for joining me. Huge welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. Let, let me just say this to start off. My middle school home ec teachers were not creating cocktails like you were in your spare time, or at least if they were, I mean, they hid that pretty well. So I, our former students like that you've had, they must think like, it's pretty awesome. She taught me how to bake a casserole. Now look at what she's doing here. Well, I actually, you know, that the home ec job was my first job out of college. So I progressed after that to um, working at university. So that was my last job. But I will say that my coworkers and my previous like uh, college teachers are like, this is the most insane career path anybody that we've ever heard of has taken before. So, um, yeah, not necessarily students, but it's also one of those things where, you know, my parents are like, our friends ask, where do you live and what is your job? And I can't answer either one of those. So it's very interesting to me as well. I'm like, what am I even doing and how did I make this a career? Because it seems, it still seems very odd to me. Yeah. I mean, I think I've gotten that a thousand times. Like when I go through an airport, it's like profession, right? And you're like, hmm, I don't want to raise any red flags here, but what the heck do I say, you know, like as, as profession. And so we'll usually just default to travel blogger, even though that doesn't even begin to describe kind of what we do. Um, what is your default then? Like you're filling out that custom sheet. What are you putting in there when it says occupation? Uh, self-employed. <laughs> all right. All right. That's an easy I catch up. I keep it at that unless I'm getting some secondary questions. Although I have, um, anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about this more later, but I get more questions about the misconception of the amount of alcohol you can bring in, um, to the U S or, or to any other countries. Um, so that's a very interesting topic and the U S um, there's a misconception in the U.S. about how much duty you have to actually pay on alcohol that you bring in. All right. Well, give us that then. Now, now my interest is yeah. peaked. Like, what's the okay. misconception? So I think the misconception is, and I had this misconception that when you're filling out the paper about are you what are you bringing into the U.S., um, we used to have to fill out a paper. I mean, I have whatever you global entry where you just go through. But then I tell the person that I'm talking to that I'm bringing in a bunch of alcohol and I've gotten to the point where I write a list and cause I'm bringing in a lot, like I'm lighting a list of all the alcohol, the amounts and the percentages, because a lot of people are like, Oh, you can only bring in like two bottles to the U S which is true duty free. But most people don't realize that the duty on the extra bottles is like a dollar per bottle or less. Okay. Uh -oh. So I learned this because when I've gone up and you want to be honest and I present the paper, um, the customs people are just like, Oh, well like I am declaring it. So they let me go. Um, 
But I have had an issue once in Miami when I came back from a Caribbean island and I brought like 18 bottles of rum. They made me go to secondary screening, which usually doesn't happen. The guy at customs looked up every bottle. This is why they don't want to charge you the duty. And they usually just say, go on through. Um, he looked up every bottle. And the duty came out to like $7. And at the end of like two hours, he was like, oh, it's just $7. Like, I'm not going to make you pay it. And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's the time that we spend in there. But he also was like, why are you bringing this in? Because some people will think if you're bringing in that much alcohol that you're using it for a business purpose or you have like a liquor store or bar or restaurant. And I'm like, look, I don't have a bar or restaurant. The term is this is for my personal consumption. That is the term that you say. But you know, he was like, I need your business card. And before I knew it, he was like on my Instagram account. And he was like, this is what you do for your job. And I'm like, yes, this is what I do <laughs> for my job. And I've got to try all these bottles of rum. I'm trying all these bottles of rum just for my personal consumption. So that was a weird interaction. Cause it's like, at some point, how do you define that this is a personal hobby for yourself, but also where did that cross over? But I, the biggest thing they're looking for is you reselling a bottle to someone. Gotcha. Gotcha. And he could see like that was clear on how you were doing it, that, that you weren't because obviously you were using it to make cocktails to then put on Instagram, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Okay. So the so, moral of the story is, you don't have to pay that much if you want to bring in more. And you can bring in more through airports if you want to bring in more. Just so, okay, so let me get this straight. So you, all right, so you get your duty-free amount, which is very small, but then you declare it, whatever amount you want. And is there a cap on that, like on, on the amount that you declare, or is there no cap? I think there might be after like 100 bottles or something. But like the U.S. is one of... I mean, I don't, I, honestly, I don't know the liquor laws for every country in the world, but the U.S. has one of the most lax for bringing in booze. And people don't realize that because you get held back when you're like, oh, I can only bring two in. Because if you take an extra one, say, into Canada, they charge you like 500% of whatever, it like it's expensive, like it's more than the actual bottle itself. So people get scared, but the U.S. is very, very, um, the, the laws are lax in that department. <laughs> All right. So, so as long as you declare, then you usually don't even have to pay the duty you're saying. So like you declare and they just say, all right, you declared it. We don't care. Go through every once in a while. You might have to pay the duty, but it's going to be very, very minimal if you do. Unless you're bringing in something just insanely expensive, which you're taking a risk putting that in your suitcase anyway. So, um, yeah, so that's that's the moral of the story. You just always want to declare everything. Just don't try to walk through that. Like that's that's the other, you know, tip, which people, I mean, I don't know. 
do experienced travelers still walk through and and not declare stuff? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I know we have had some mishaps with (laughs) wine coming back, but it wasn't, I don't think it was coming back to the U.S. I feel like we were in India. Anyway, we were detained and there was this huge hubbub of us not declaring everything we had. So... Moral of the story, declare if you have it, you probably don't have to pay that much unless it's too expensive. I feel like that little reading rainbow um, star (laughs) should shoot across the the screen. Like The more you know, right? Uh, Because that's, yeah, something that I didn't know. I just kind of knew the duty-free law and just assumed that that meant, oh, if I'm bringing anything else in, it's not worth it. Like, I'm going to get dinged, you know, and it's going to be super expensive. All right. Awesome. Good. Wait, way to start off a podcast with a healthy yeah. travel tip right off the top. Um, I want to know for you, when did this obsession with cocktails start? Like, has this been a light? Well, obviously not lifelong uh, or maybe, but you know, when did this happen where you were like, yeah, I just, I just love cocktails. Um, I, so I mean, I would like to say that I was a cocktail drinker in college, but no. Um, <laughs> there was some failed attempts there. I think um, I just I think I'm obsessed with the whole entertaining aspect of it and how it really like brings people together. And when people have a cocktail, whether you know you're drinking a non-alcoholic cocktail or a regular cocktail, I think that those drinkable moments really bring people together. And I've just been so amazed about for a really long time about entertaining people at home. And I think maybe it's because I'm from a small town and there wasn't a ton of people that did that. I was just so in awe of people that had like dinner parties and themed parties. And so when I, the last place I lived is actually here in Seattle. I used to have like these themed dinner parties all the time. And I think one of my favorite things to do is as soon as somebody walks in the door, hand them like a fun cocktail or drink right off the bat. Cause that feels like hospitality to the max. And I, and I just got obsessed. And because I'm from North Carolina, we, um, in college and after college, I was really obsessed with bourbon because we got a lot of bourbon being close to Kentucky. And so when I was in Seattle, I started collecting the bourbon and I just drank it neat or as a nightcap. But then as the cocktail scene and I would visit different bars and see cocktails they were making, I was like, hmm, I'm going to try to start doing something with this bourbon other than just sipping it. And one of the first cocktails I made, which was not something I would make now, but it was like bourbon and orange juice. And like my, and this happened with actually a margarita too. When I, when I found out the um, benefits of using fresh citrus, I mean, this is like eight years ago. Okay. So don't judge me. But when I found out the benefits of using fresh citrus, I was just like, this is a game changer. And really the cost of, you know, using fresh lemons and limes in your cocktails at home is very minimal. So 
it's like that's one of my biggest tips for making cocktails at home fresh citrus juice makes like the biggest difference ever i don't know what i was doing before i guess i was using some kind of mixer <laughs> that, that was not fresh citrus so i just remember being like i when i go into a cocktail bar this seems when they're making me a drink this seems very complicated but actually when i started breaking it down at home I was surprised at how easy it actually was. Now, I'm not saying every cocktail in the bar, but how easy it was, for example, just to make a really great margarita. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're, it seems to me you're a creative person, right? Like with the theme dinner parties and then this idea of, yeah, you can drink alcohol, and have a beer or have wine. And, and obviously those have their own nuances and, and beer especially is having a huge resurgence when it comes to people doing really interesting stuff. But you're not making it, right? Like you're enjoying the fruit of someone else's labor. But with cocktails, you get to sit there if, if you're the one hosting and, and bartending and say like, oh man, I get to be creative with this. Like this is fun. I can try stuff out. I can I can make different things. I can share something with someone that they probably haven't had before or haven't had to this quality. Yeah. And I think a lot of those themed dinner parties were based on trips and travel that I had done. So I was just trying to relive those travel moments, even though I was in a regular job sitting at home. So I feel like we've come full circle because we're back there. I don't know if everybody's back there, but I'm back there <laughs> stuck sitting at home. So I'm also finding little moments and little ways to make this more bearable by reliving places I've been to, whether it's through cocktails or through food. And that's been one of my biggest inspirations for the creation of Beautiful Booze was having those drinkable moments with my friends and creating these wonderful cocktails, but also having the influence of traveling to different places to kind of recreate that memory and share it with other people. Yeah, it comes back to curiosity, right? It's like we travel because we're curious to see things and eat things and smell things that we've never experienced before. And then how can we do that at home? And obviously, we're recording during during COVID here. And, you know, for that, a lot of, for a lot of us who that's our main source of like, yeah, like travel, my life is built around that. It's pulled away. That doesn't mean you can't satiate that curiosity a little bit. And we've seen that with people saying, I'm going to make a meal from a different country that I've traveled to every week or theming out meals, theming out cocktails. And, and it's been pretty neat. I mean, obviously I want to get back to traveling and so do you now. like, don't get us wrong. But there are ways to have parts of that same feeling even when we are at home. So the travel for you came before the, the love of cocktails. When did the love of travel start to percolate? Well, I worked, like I said, I worked at University of Washington here in Seattle, and I was a grant writer. I mainly worked um, with tribal communities here in Washington State, and so I, I had a very rewarding job where I helped people, but also I, um, what I like to say, I had a regular job, not that I don't have a regular job now, but I got like about not that much time off. 
So it's interesting because I, I did love traveling to different places like once or twice a year when I had that job, I was going to Argentina, I went to Europe, um, some other places. It always felt too short and I don't know what it was. It was like you, you start and then it's already time to come home, but then you, you, you get back on Monday and you're planning your other trip cause you want something to look forward to. So that really started it for me. But, um, when I, did I, you, when did you believe that you could do it then? Because that is, I think a lot of people listening are at the point where you were at of like, all right, this is too short. I have a regular job. I like it. I, it's rewarding. This is normal, but you know, I don't want to continue down this path for 20, 30 years. I, I need to be able to do something else. So for you, walk us through that journey. Like, did you start beautiful booze then and, and think I'm going to turn it into a business? Was it something that was a slow burn? I like, because there are a lot of people at the stage that you were just talking about that are saying, wait a second, how did Natalie get there then? Like how is she able to go bring 18 bottles of rum back and, and be, have that be her job? Okay. So this was definitely a process for me. And I think on my end where my followers get freaked out as they wonder how I live out of it, how, how before COVID I was leaving out of a suitcase and I kind of still don't know how, how I have done it, but I will tell you what I did. Um, so my job at the university, I had, my boss was amazing, but we worked under government grants, federal grants, which all got cut. So I got laid off and I was in a place where I had worked a, in a government job in some capacity from being a teacher to a university for like over 10 years. And that doesn't seem like a long time, but I was just, I don't know. I was in a mindset where I was like, this is an opportunity for me to take a creative break. And actually, I've been looking for something to fulfill that creative creative energy that I had, but I was unable to find it. So when I got laid off, I, you know, I had friends all the time ask me for cocktail recipes. I was on Instagram, like looking at what was going on. And I saw all of these like food bloggers and people putting up food recipes, but they weren't chefs, right? They were like these food bloggers. But I never saw anyone do that same thing for cocktails. And actually, I was like, I'm going to start doing this. <laughs> I went to sleep one night and I dreamed about what I could call the website. And I dreamed beautiful booze and I woke up and I looked to see if that had been taken and it had not. So I was like, this feels very like something I could do. So I realized I was in a very fortunate position after being in a government job. I had saved a lot of money to the point where I knew I could take a couple months off. And also because I was getting unemployment because I, I got laid off from my job. 
So I just started making cocktail, making a different cocktail every day, photographing it, put it on my blog and putting it on my social media just, just for myself, just for my creative outlet. At the same time, I was looking for more jobs in my field, which was public health. And the more I started going down the road of putting up this stuff on social media, the more attention I was getting from cocktail lovers around the world, uh, alcohol brands, beer and wine and spirit stores, all, all these people, because I think nobody else was doing it. Like I was doing it. Um, just making vibrant and cheerful and beautiful cocktails. And so I, um, realized after a couple months, I was like, I'm going to try to keep this going, see if I can figure out a way to make money. What I didn't realize at the time is that the part of making the cocktails was actually secondary to try to monetize this. The Trying to monetize this was actually marketing myself. So this was like a full-blown marketing job, right? I had to learn how to push myself on social media, on the blog, try to do PR for myself. I got myself into all kinds of publications, just um, going on this site called Help a Reporter Out. Any reporter that was writing for cocktails or anything, I would supply them with photos or whatever. So it, this was just like I had my head down for a couple months. Then... I was just, I got a job contributing a cocktail a week for a website. And then I started doing some photos for different brands and running other people's social media. So I, I was able to get those jobs in like the first five or four or five months. And at that point, I felt like I had enough money to cover my living cost. So then I stopped looking for a job. All right. So you're about five months in and you're like, all right, I've patched enough together to like to make it bare bones, maybe, but whatever, make it. And then what was there a point or two that got you from that level to like catapulting you to saying, all right, now I'm not just making it and I'm not just going to make it for a little while and then maybe have to go back, but like. No, this is me now. This is uh, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing and I'm and I'm at a comfortable place doing it. Yeah, I will say like the so I all of so I really all of 2014 and 2015 was me just trying to cover my expenses and it was me spending mm 15 plus hours a day just figuring it out like contacting I don't know figuring out how it worked I had no idea I had never been a bartender or worked in the marketing world or understood that the people contacting me from brands were actually from PR agencies representing brands and so just learning about the marketing industry and PR industry of the booze world I mean, that it took a long time just to pick up all of these skills. And so that was all of 2014. 2015, I started moving forward and I got to November of 2015 and I decided 
if I want, I, I came to a line where I was like, if I want to keep doing this, I'm going to have to get a part-time job because I just was not making enough to make it in Seattle. Seattle's very expensive. Um, that's when I decided to sell everything and move to a cheaper place to be able to grow the business without having financial strains. It was just mm. the stress of carrying the burden of the cost of living in Seattle and the, the inability to do any of the stuff I wanted to, right? I wasn't able to travel or do anything like that. I was essentially like in Seattle with my head down trying to grow what I thought maybe I could monetize. I had no clue. I, every day it was like, I'm going to try to find another job today, another job today. And I just couldn't do exactly what I wanted to do unless I made a change. And this seems so extreme. I realize not that many people are in a position where they can take an extreme change, but I knew I would have to get a part-time job, which would limit my ability to grow this business. And so, all right, so you said I can either get a part-time job or, or I can change my living environment, which is one thing that we tell people a lot. And, and people who haven't traveled might not even be aware that or, or might not know the extent of how much cheaper it can be in, in other places and in other countries. And so for you, what did that, where'd you go? And how did you decide where that was going to be? Well, I had been out of the country like three times my entire life, and I had not traveled anywhere for two years before making this decision. Um, and actually, it was a process. I was very nervous that when I got to other, I had to have a plan in place because the way that a lot of the business I do works is brands sending me their bottles and I'll make a cocktail and I'll post it on Instagram. It's like a sponsored post. I was very worried that I would not be able to do those projects and brands wouldn't work with me if I was living in another country. So I actually, my cousin who is a professional photographer was willing to take on, help me with any projects that I could not find the product for overseas because nobody could, no one can really send you alcohol overseas. I mean, they can try, but it's just a nightmare. So you don't even want to get into that. Um, so it was just, I was very nervous going into it that I may not, this may not work because I'm disconnecting myself from the U.S. So um, my business partner who I met in Vancouver, Canada, cause Seattle is not that far from Vancouver. His, he's Australian and he had a work visa in Canada and his visa was ending and he was like, I'm going to go travel. And that kind of lit a spark in me to be like, well, I have no clients in Seattle and nothing holding me in Seattle. I am leaving here also. <laughs> and he already had a plan of going to Central America, um, to Guatemala. And I just kind of tagged along. Um, and the, I feel like after meeting a lot of Australians, 
they travel a lot. They're so far away from everything that once they start traveling, you, you're traveling, you always meet a lot of Australians around there. They travel. I think their culture of traveling is much different than us in the U S so it was nice to have somebody like that that was willing to take a risk because obviously everybody here in the U.S., my friends and my family, thought I was out of my mind, like that I was having like a mental breakdown. Um, so, you know, I just packed a suitcase and went to Guatemala. I bartended in a hostel for a couple months so I didn't have to pay any rent at all. Um, and worked during the day, then traveled a couple more places in Guatemala, went up to Mexico, stayed there for three or four months, and then I was traveling. I had different projects coming up in the U.S., so I traveled back and forth. Really, they were conferences and stuff, so that's where it started. That's, that's how it all went down. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't, I hadn't, like I said, I didn't have that much experience traveling before that. I've just been on vacation trips. This, this is a different type of living, right? You're, you're living, you, you need to live like a regular lifestyle to make this work. And you can't be on vacation every day as right. a full-time traveler, right? Totally. I, I think that is. And what, what the reality is, is very, very, very different. And at the time, I kind of wanted to show that just to give my audience an idea. But I was, again, I I didn't publicize the traveling till a couple years after that because I, I, I don't know why. I just felt like if I, I was moving forward with the business and I felt like if I started pushing the travel part, it would come crumbling down. Huh. So then for you, okay, so what... What brought you to a point where you felt comfortable enough to then make the travel a part of the company? Because it's not now just, you know, awesome cocktails, which, you know, it's awesome cocktails around the world and and, and it has a travel emphasis with it. So when did you feel comfortable enough for that? Was it a, a, a dollar amount that you hit or or a big win that you had in the business or you just getting to a point where you're like, yeah, no one cares that. I'm traveling like in a negative way they, they it actually is a positive thing when they hear about it. Yeah. I think the way that I portrayed it, most people still thought I had a home base. Why well, would I, I did a gradual post here and there about travel. So like, you know, I was in Argentina for a long time and I put like, photos up but not like a lot of photos in a row and all the photos with travel had a bottle of wine or a cocktail or or came back to that core message I had for beautiful booze it wasn't necessarily a dollar amount I think once I started going to more like conferences internationally and press trips internationally I just saw that there was a big um, opportunity to show people places around the world. And I started getting more questions of, you know, I'm going to Paris, what bar should I go to? So I, I just started getting more and more and more questions about 
stuff, which made me think that there was a gap in information on the internet about this stuff. And I could really start fulfilling that. And actually I did reach a point of my audience and the number of people that I felt like, I don't know, you, you, I felt like I had reached a point where I attracted everybody that I was going to attract through cocktails. And I kind of wanted to, you know, attract some different people. And I thought if I started talking about travel, that would entice all the travel lovers to come over and, um, come over to my page as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. It, it, you know, you don't feel confident until you hit a certain level. And then when you get that confidence, you say, well, other people could use this too. Like there's a bit more nuance to what I'm doing than just, just the cocktails. But I think in the beginning, you make a good point. When you're starting out, it is better to be niche and it is better to be specific and, and, and not say, I'm going to have a travel and cocktail and food blog, right? Because then people yeah. be like, well, that's everything, you know? But if you, you focus on just cocktails and that's what got you traction because someone came to your site and was like, oh, she's doing cocktails. Like, I get this. Like, I like this. And that gives you some, some traction with a certain subset that then can gain, grow and, and go to other subsets. So, yeah. I'll also say this. And this sounds weird, but um, because I was so obsessed with trying to make this work and so deep into making cocktails that I actually liked keeping the travel part, <laughs> a lot of it to myself and um, mm -hmm. being able to enjoy that. Not that I wouldn't enjoy it, but you know what I mean? I didn't, ha I didn't actually have the time to spend so many hours trying to get travel content when I was on a deadline to get cocktail content and looking back all those places that I was, you know, I would take photos here and there because it was, it was great to show, but I do have some kind of life offline that I didn't have to constantly feel like I was showcasing. Yeah, that is a great point. You you sometimes don't want your hobby or all of your hobbies to to have to be work, right? Like sometimes it's like, yeah, I like cocktails, but I know I have to be working. If I'm doing this stuff, I can just relax. I'm going to go do an adventure and travel and not have to worry about taking a thousand pictures or something like that. Yeah. Now for you. Okay, so this opens up a good question. I'm, I want to go a little rapid fire here with some questions. Okay. Um, <laughs> not that you have to be rapid fire, but best countries for cocktails that you've been to then? The Japanese culture that you'll find with everything else that happens over there. But the cocktails are insane. Um, Mexico, Mexico City specifically, the a lot of bars are using... Um, ingredients from Mexico, obviously tequila and mezcal, but they obviously have amazing spices and things to work with in Mexico that make very vibrant and tasty and creative cocktails. Um, all right. Mexico, Japan. Nice. What then? Yeah. All right. What countries need to read up on your book a little bit? What countries might be, might be lacking in the cocktail scene? Well, I think a lot of people 
Well, I mean, it's okay. So it's hard to, it's hard to call people out because, you know, I have a lot of, a lot of places are, are getting better as the cocktail culture and more training is out there. But I think in Europe, I'm not saying all of Europe, but like in certain places in Europe, you will find that people are so used to drinking beer and wine and the price point that beer and wine is at is different. And the cocktails are more expensive and obviously um, there's not going to be as many cocktail bars just because people are drinking beer and wine. And I think a lot of times, you know, there's not as many options, not necessarily that there's bad cocktails. There's amazing cocktail bars in Paris and Amsterdam and all these places, but um, there's there's less of it just given that there's not as much of a demand. Um, like in Argentina, there's some really good cocktail bars, but the flavor profile tends to be a little bit sweeter for the people that live there and bitter. Um, so I don't know. You know, every country I've been to has these signature cocktails and they tend to be really good but obviously even i have some room for improvements <laughs> i love that i love a very diplomatic but but you answer the question and i think you put it in okay. a way that that <laughs> makes sense right it's not that people there are less skilled it's just that the cocktails might not be as big a part of the culture therefore you're gonna have less options um all right the three you don't have to give me three so, or one. Maybe that sticks out. Whatever. However many you want to give. The strangest cocktails you've ever drank. Oh, my God. Well, I, I have one in the book that is based off this strange cocktail I had in Czech Republic. And actually, this is funny. I did this... Um, thing well one of my favorite cocktail is a daiquiri and it's because it's rum sugar and lime juice and it's not the frozen version it is just that shaken and strained i love the citrus profile so i started doing this thing called destination daiquiri where i would get different bars around the world to make me a daiquiri with ingredients from the destination. So in Czech Republic, they made me a really crazy daiquiri with Befka Rafka. And I'm saying that wrong because my <laughs> accent is messed up, but it is a Czech um, liqueur, if I'm right about that. And it had some dill and maybe some pickle elements to it. I tried to recreate something similar in my book. I don't know if I can do it justice but I did try it tasted weird but in a good way right it was about the destination and that's that was really fun for me to get a bartender to make their version of what you could try from their country yeah totally uh, any other really I mean there's I'm sure a lot of unique ones but any other ones that stick out to you as, as just being like again not we'll get to like the best ones you've ever had or, or fanciest or whatever, but just like this is an experience, like this is unique. I, you know, someone just off the street is not going to be able to to maybe have this experience um, just anywhere in the world. Yeah, I mean, it's I've had so many thing, many cocktails, and I'm 
I'm just trying to think. I mean, that one was the most, in, probably the most interesting one I have ever had to drink. But you will get a lot of like crazy garnishes. You know what I mean? You will get a lot of crazy pairings. Like there's a bar in Singapore that's really cool. They change, I think every month they change their theme. So um, when I was there, and I guess it was January or February, they had like the Chinese New Year theme. And so they had a cocktail that was paired with a, it wasn't garnished, but you were supposed to eat abalone while you drank the cocktail. So no. So not that that's crazy ingredient in there, but it's definitely served on the side and you're supposed to enjoy that while you are having um, that. I've also done, you know, the bone marrow luges where you're, you eat the bone marrow and then you pour sherry down, <laughs> down the luge. I'm not saying that's a that's not a cocktail, but that's a different kind of way um, to drink it. Also, whiskey and oyster shots, where you pour whiskey into the oyster and drink it. Those are just some creative destination places things that you that I've experienced while going around the world drinking cocktails. Not necessarily stuff that was not drinkable, just different ways people presented things, whether it be a theme or a, a local ingredient that was interesting. And I will try everything. <laughs> nice. Well, then this next question is going to be great. I, I'm not asking yet because we will get to like the best or, or your recommendations or of, of like places to seek out for like just the best quality cocktails you've had. But what about some of the most pleasantly surprising ones? Because you hit on some of these, right? Of like, hey, it wasn't the best, but it was unique. But have you ever been to, like, have you ever gone somewhere and thought, this is going to be horrible? Like, because you'll try anything. Like, I'll try this, but there's no way it's going to be good. And then had it and thought, whoa, like, that's all right. Or maybe it's even good. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of, I so i I went to this gin distillery once and they were doing this project where they were infusing their gin with all kinds of stuff. So like they even infused it with a Big Mac. So it, it's like these crazy infusions, whether it's usually like a spirit that's infused with like again like oyster brine or like a martini that's made with like oyster brine where you're like I don't know how this is gonna go but then you realize like the saltiness of that oyster brine as saline usually does just brings out the flavor and really seasons the cocktail so you're kind of like uh this is questionable but um a lot of like seafood type things like prawn infused vodka you know what i mean where you're yeah, like yeah. shrimp infused vodka like this is uh you only think maybe that would be good in like a bloody mary or something but you have it in a martini or like some kind of stirred cocktail or like a shake in like gimlet or something and you're like actually this is 
pretty good. And the infusion doesn't taste anything like what you thought it would like just that weird seafood flavor. So I do think that seafood is one of those things that people have played with to infuse spirits and use those in cocktails, which I find very interesting. Where was that? Do you remember where that gin distillery was or what it was called? The one that was infusing like a Big Mac and stuff. Oh, Monkey 47. Like they were doing a big project where they, I think they were making different kinds of martinis or Gibson martinis or something, but they were seeing what each infusion tasted like using crazy things. All right. You mentioned a daiquiri was your kind of go-to favorite. Like I use this as a standard bearer to, you know, maybe rank, rank a bar or, or, uh, or something like that. Do you have, when we're talking about your regular kind of typical spirit, do you have in your head, like, Hey, I'm like, rum's always my favorite, then gin, then vodka, then bourbon. You know, do you have that? Like, in your head, is there is there a lick is there a spirit you don't like? Well, I think this is a very interesting concept that I've talked to with people, and I think that this happens a lot with food, also. Maybe it doesn't, but there's there's something I like to call situational drinking. <laughs> okay. Well, just make me being a bad person. I don't know. I I so I like the idea of situational drinking. Like if I'm drinking something in a specific country or like at the distillery or like on the beach, just like think about this. If you have a specific like margarita on the beach in Mexico and then it's like raining in Seattle and I'm sitting here, you know, in the worst weather possible, when I make that margarita, it's going to taste good. But is it going to taste as good as I was drinking it on the beach in Mexico? That's what I call situational drinking. And that was one of the reasons that um, I started Beautiful Booze because I would make cocktails for my friends. And whether they were good or not, everybody enjoyed them, right? Because we were in a situation where it was situational drinking. It was really fun. And we were with the people and the environment was so great. So it didn't matter whether they were good or not. So I have a lot of, I like everything. I think there's a place for every single spirit. And I do think that some things when I'm standing on, even with wine, when I'm staying in the vineyards drinking a red wine, does that taste good? Yeah, it tastes good. And when I drink it in Seattle, does it taste as good? Mm. Maybe, maybe it does it, but it's the, it's the situation that you're in. But I, I have some spirits that I prefer over others. There isn't anything that I'm like, uh, I don't think I like that. Although Malor, which is that famous liqueur, whatever they love in Chicago, it's like bitter, bitter, bitter that I, I don't really feel like I maybe need that again, but <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, I, it's, to, I totally do. I mean, we talk about that. We travel all the time, right? Like someone's favorite place is going to be not just because of the place itself, but who you were with, the experience you had. I mean, there's so much that encapsulates it. And so when we do our year-end review lists, when we talk about our best meal, we always preface it by saying, 
yes, maybe this had the best food, but we're not just ranking just on food. We're saying, what was our best eating experience of the year? What was our best drinking experience of the year? Because the the actual drink and the actual food might make up 75% of it. And I'm just picking numbers, you know, it's just random, but it, it's, it's a large chunk of it. You're not going to say this was my best meal if it was horrible food. It's a chunk of it and a, maybe even a majority of it, but there's so much else that goes into it that plays into making a good meal with good food, a great meal or a best ever meal or a best ever drink. So on that note, let's. what are your best cocktail experiences that you've had around the world? Yeah, and I will just say this also. Once you go around the world and you go to these distilleries and you meet the people that are actually making this stuff with their bare hands, you become – it changes your perception of some of these things. Mm, um, good point. <laughs> so – uh, and mezcal is one of those that takes so much work to make. And it's just, you appreciate it so much more after you have that experience. Um, but some of the best drinking experiences, well, um, it takes me back to not that long ago when I was in Asia. I did a, like a little Asia bar crawl video series um, in Japan, Singapore, and Taiwan. And um I had never been to Taiwan, Taipei. It was just somewhere that I heard that they had really awesome bars. And I got there and I was I just thought it was insane. Like <laughs> it was their bar scene and their concepts were some of the most creative things I've ever seen. I my mind was completely blown. Um in, in various ways, but a bar had just opened where they were doing a cocktail pairing menu. So I did have that in Taipei. It was awesome. The cocktails were perfectly paired with the food, which is, is not that easy because you always think traditional wine pairings. And so, you know, you had your own personal bartender bartending um, and then the chef right there plating up the dishes. So that's something I hadn't seen before in the world. And that was at a place called Mu um, in Taipei. Um, a lot of things that I started seeing around the world that I find very interesting are these concepts of open bars like you know how the concept of open kitchens these are open bars and you see the bartender doing it it's like the bars are usually open but I'm talking about I went to this bar in Taipei and it was a circular room and the bartender was just in the middle of it so you can see every aspect from front to back of what he was doing and he was actually a former chef that decided he was going to open a bar. And so he did that and his techniques were crazy. And like some of the ingredients that they're using in like Japan and Taiwan are like, you know, these locally sourced teas and green teas using that with like Campari, which is an Italian um, bitter to make these crazy, crazy cocktails with dry ice and all of these techniques that are just these 
the the drinks are as good as the performance that you're seeing them do. And I think those experiences just blew my mind. Another one in Taipei was a spaceship, um, space cocktails. You walk in like you're walking in a spaceship. The door opens. It looks like a spaceship inside, and you can order these space cocktails, which you would think going in, this is going to be gimmicky. Yeah, but right, it's like, like themed took, and lame, right? Yeah. They took these this theme and they elevated it so high. I was like, this is the best theme bar I've ever been into. It's like the cocktails are awesome and, you know, they're executed perfectly, exactly balanced and flavorful and everything else. And What that, is the name of that? That place, the spaceship place, and the circular bar. If people, so the are- circular bar is called Room by Lakeith, and this guy had a seven is the bar t- chef tender. He had a he has a restaurant called Lakeith, and the the Room by Lakeith is basically a room um, with the bar, and just the ingredients that they're using was just insane and the space age one was called to infinity and beyond i can Um, see why you think that would be gimmicky (laughs) you know and a lot of these bars had just opened in the last six months so what i've noticed of traveling around the world is you have the u.s where people love cocktails and then you have other cities probably five years behind the u.s And so they're just now getting really, really serious about cocktails. And what you do see is a lot of people, bartenders will go work at hotels in these cities and get training because hotels tend to have a lot bigger budgets for training bartenders. And then they'll work at one of those famous hotel bars and then they'll go, all these bartenders will go off and open their new bars and concepts and they're really 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 awesome do you happen to have a favorite in the u.s either favorite cocktail experience yeah favorite cocktail experience go to like if i'm in this city i'm going here or i'm or i'm like making a trip just to go to this place yeah it's harder for me in the u.s because like i realized last year i only spent like three months here and that was really working Um, and because I have so many things here in the U S you like you, you realize after traveling, it's really easy to like go to the grocery store and get glassware and everything is very comfortable. Like you can order glasses and get them two days later, which is not the case in every place around the world. So I, when I come here, I tend to, um, just do work, um, rather than bar hop. Um, I'll tell you one of my favorite places, there's uh, one of the biggest cocktail conventions in the world called Tales of the Cocktail every July. It's supposed to be happening right now. I've been going to that for seven years, no matter what. Well, obviously not this time, but I um, will go there every single year in July. And the Carousel Bar, I think, is very unique to New Orleans. If you haven't been there, it's in the Monteleon Hotel. The bar moves like 
a carousel and it's been there for a very long time. I don't know the date when it was put in there, but they have old photos of it and it's very cool. The cocktails are good. You can go in there and get a pineapple daiquiri or I'm, I think there was a couple cocktails, even classic cocktails even invented there. And so the thing about new Orleans is you do have like the Sazerac and like the French 75 and all of these drinks that have, been rooted from new orleans and so i always enjoy visiting there because there's so many classic cocktail bars and then you have a mix of modern cocktail bars so there's really something for everyone mm, yeah new orleans is a great place to be for a lot of reasons uh yeah, you know food actually, drink fun yeah. and actually i wrote my book there in new orleans so i I got a lot of inspiration from being there and, um, yeah, just writing the book in the heat <laughs> of August. Last oh, year. wow. Yeah. Not, not so fun in August. Well, I mean, I guess if you're, if you're drinking a few hand grenades, no, I know that's probably well below you, the, uh, the hand grenades at this point. Uh, well, let, let's, I, I will ask you this quick question. Are you fine with drinking like or, or do you have like a guilty pleasure where you're like, I'm going to go and just get one of those crappy cocktails. I don't care. Like sometimes I just want that. Yeah. Like, um, I love blended cocktails. Okay. All right. First. I mean, I think there's a time and a place for every single thing. And I'm telling you when they hand you like a bright blue drink, like in Barbados or Aruba or something, like, that is, like, the best thing you've ever had. Like, I would go to Mexico all the time and get, like, these blended banana daiquiris. It's, like, so good. Yeah, situational okay. drinking. It is situational drinking. I'm actually trying to bring some of those back this summer because it's hot everywhere. And I've actually been making some blended. I Recently, I just made a, 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 gin, a blended gin and tonic. Oh, now we're talking. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I can get behind that. That's awesome. <laughs> all right. Um, what do you, you talk about home bars and, and your site is all about like how, being a home bartender uh, with the travel theme, of course, too, and, and visiting some of these places around the world. What do you, and we don't have to get into a whole, you know, a, a whole, here's your list for, for what you want at a home bar, but what are you skimping on? And what are you splurging on when it comes to the home bar? Yeah, I think I get this question a lot. Like people want to know, like, what are their, what basics do you need to have a home bar and stuff like that? Now, what I've been really pushing during quarantine and COVID, because, you know, everybody's trying to make cocktails at home if, if they're a cocktail lover, is buying these spirits that are versatile like for example buying the way that I like to make cocktails is not buying the most expensive rum on the shelf obviously not buying the most expensive tequila on the shelf but buying something in the middle of the range that tastes good sipping it and then it tastes good in a cocktail when when people say when chefs I've heard chefs say when you're cooking with wine, you want to cook with a wine that you would drink. I feel the same way about putting a spirit in a cocktail. I want to drink that cocktail where the spirit is good. A lot of cocktails 
essentially were invented to cover and mask the flavor of the spirits. But now I think we can make more balanced cocktails that where you can actually lift the spirit up and you want that spirit, the qualities of those that spirit to shine through. When I'm making a tequila drink, I want to be able to taste those earthy notes of the agave. I don't want to cover the spirit. So you want to, I, my recommendation for any spirit that you want to stock your bar with is get one that tastes good when you're sipping it, you know, and that gives you two ways to drink it. Not only if you feel like drinking something neat or you want a nightcap with bourbon or whiskey, you can do that. But it's also when you buy that middle range, you're going to get something that's good in a cocktail as well. Cause I don't want you know, I don't want to make like a, an old fashioned with something with a spirit that is that doesn't taste good. I don't want to have to mask it so much. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you with specific spirits? Have you found that I know you said by middle range for, for any spirit and you'll be OK, but have you found that certain spirits I guess the way to say it, like get a lot better if you go higher quality, like you're like, I can't or and like, I can't touch a low quality one of these because it's horrible. But hey, a low quality vodka I could have and I'm just I don't know if that's it. But, you know, in your mind, are certain spirits better at a higher price point than they are at, at the kind of low price point? Well, I think that's always going to be the case. There's, there's a couple reasons why they're going to be more expensive. One is marketing and one is quality. So you, you do want to make sure that you're getting something like with tequila that's like 100% agave, which are mostly, I think most of the ones are going to be that. But I will tell you, there's a lot of, like a lot of things in the U.S., labels can be deceiving. So you want to make sure that you understand what you're looking for. I do think... So gin is one of those things where right now people think about gin in the traditional London dry gin. It's very juniper forward. But coming up in the recent five years or so, there's a lot of people distilling gin. And they're distilling gin obviously with some juniper, but they're using all kinds of botanicals, lavender, lemon peel, you know, like all of these non-traditional um, herbs are going into and botanicals are going into these gins. So that's one category that can be a little bit different because if you get something like a Hendrix gin, it's they use cucumber. It's a little bit more cucumber forward. You know, if your your traditional gin is going to be juniper heavy, but then you have like I have one called Moffy Gin that's made a uh, has a lot of a Moffy lemons that it's distilled with I think the peel so you're getting all of these choices and I think one of the problems that people find is they're overwhelmed at the liquor store because now that there's so many varieties it's hard to figure out what you like yeah yeah totally gin, gin is my drink of choice and so I I am I love the fact that they're starting to be more because forever it was like you know whatever really low level gin 
that you're drinking when you're in college or a little after. Then you have Tangray, Bombay, Hendrix. And I didn't I don't like Hendrix really because I don't like cucumber. Um, but now there's so much more nuance to people distilling gin. And I got like one distilled with apples. I didn't love it, but it was interesting. Like it tasted different than any gin I had ever had. Yeah, I do think overall though, one any spirit you're going to find is better if you spend a little bit more money. It's, I mean, I could go through all of them. Obviously, the bottom shelf gins, I mean, there's a, a huge improvement when you go up a notch a little bit. Same with rum. <laughs> Same, I mean, vodka, you can probably use whatever you want um, just because it's like neutral grain alcohol. But then when you start getting into bourbons and whiskeys and aged expressions, like you have rums that are aged and not aged, you it, it does get complicated. But I do think overall spending a little bit more money and investing in a more high quality spirit over all of the categories is going to benefit you. Also liqueurs. Um, I don't use that many liqueurs, but when it comes to fruit liqueurs and different things, you're definitely going to benefit from going with a higher quality on that. You know, you think about banana liqueurs, if you're getting that bottom, bottom shelf, it's going to be like those runts, candy, bananas, and taste very chemically where you can get something that's made of better quality. Do you detox at all like how like it must be so hard because i'm thinking about it like yeah i love eating love drinking and when we travel it's it's difficult because you want to try everything else so do you have do you go in phases where you're like yeah i'm here i or i'm at home i'm not going to drink as much i think at home I do enjoy cocktails and I enjoy making them for friends because I, I make them all the time, but I'm doing so much research and development and creating cocktail recipes that I actually am tasting them and I have to be mindful of that. I can't just sit here and I'm still, I'm like working. So there's like where a lot of people and I've had roommates in the past be like, Oh my God, like we're just, you're making these drinks and you're drinking them all day. I have to be like very mindful of, well, I'm just tasting them. It's kind of like a master distiller, not necessarily, but like they're having to go in and taste their different expressions of spirits all the time and not necessarily drink them. I feel the same way. Um, I can't drink it all of it. I just, I can't, I would be, um, sick. (laughs) So I do, I do try to practice this where I do kind of go off the boat is I don't know, I'm not an expert in wine by any means. And I feel like with wine, there's a lot to learn where you think about spirits. This is the way that whiskey is made. Brands will do it differently, age it differently, but the process is similar. For me, wine feel, I'm very curious about wine. So I I, because wine, I do try a lot of wine and I do a lot of work with a lot of wineries, but it seems like there's so many brands and so many different kinds of wine that I'm constantly drinking a lot of wine. (laughs) All right. So, so not many 
not many easy days on the job. By easy, I mean you're you're constantly having to try different things. Um, do you take ever take any time though where you say like I'm not going to have a drink for a week? And no judgment either way. Don't get me wrong. I'm just wondering because I can personally see myself being like, wow, like this tastes good, but I just can't have anything today. I think it's because I don't. I'm mindful about how, what I'm drinking, so. I don't because I, I don't like that. I don't really like that concept. I don't like limiting myself to something, even though I would like to try to be more balanced at times and living out of my suitcase. That was one of the biggest things. It's like, you're always eating out, you're drinking. It's like very bad. It's hard to get like in an exercise routine. So yeah, there's a lot of times where I'm just, working on taking photos and I'm testing cocktails and they'll be like three or four weeks where I don't have like a whole cocktail and I won't even mm. realize it. It's like, especially now when I can't go out to bars, you know, when I'm going out to bars, I'm more likely to drink an entire cocktail than I am at home when I'm testing cocktails and trying them out. You know what I mean? So if I'm not going out to places, I tend to be more on a break. Gotcha. That makes sense. I want, got one more question for you here, and it can revolve around alcohol or not. Your choice. Um, what's the biggest travel mishap you've had? Well, beyond the fact that I had to wait two hours in secondary screening for the customs people to look through my entire business model and to, <laughs> to pay $7 or not pay seven to, to get out of paying $7 and to look up everything and then say, you know, you don't, we're not going to charge you. I'm like, I'm now at this point, I just want to pay it. Right. <laughs> yeah. You're like, make it worth it at least. Right. Here's your seven bucks. I, I mean, I'm trying to think, you know, I, I have a lot of the, the things where I've, I had my birthday in Milan. There was a friend from Seattle that was there. I missed my train, those kinds of things. <laughs> uh, I haven't had anything crazy. I mean, plane delays. I, I, I think overall my, my biggest, and this isn't a mishap, this is just one of those moments where you're like, it's crazy. I didn't realize after traveling for so long how easy it, everything seems coming from the U.S. and tra anybody traveling to a new place, it seems so bizarre. But you realize after traveling all the time that you're, you're, you adapt to so many things. You know, you, you just adapt to those situations that come up and things, even when you don't speak the language. And it's crazy to me how, as humans, we're able to adapt to certain things. Yeah. And you notice that a lot when you come back because you, you're, you're kind of put back in that normal, normal spot where it's comfortable and you're like, wow. I, I've been able to adapt in all these situations. Now I don't even have to so much. I mean, one one thing that happened to me in Japan and Tokyo once is we went to this restaurant and it was essentially like this lady's house. And obviously she didn't speak. I'm not I'm saying obviously, but we were far 
kind of far out. She did not speak English. I did not speak Japanese. And I had been walking around for like three hours and I really need to use the bathroom. So somehow I put in Google Translator, do you have a bathroom? And whatever it translated to her was basically asking her if I could take a shower at her house. And she was like, no, they have that at the hotel. And I was like, oh, my God, there's no bathroom in here. And then there was a Japanese man in there. And I, and I saw him leave and go somewhere. And he came back downstairs. And I was like, did you go to a bathroom? And he was like, yeah. I was like, oh, I didn't know. If, I didn't think there was a bathroom in here. And he talked to her. And she was like, yeah, they asked me if, if she could go take a shower. That's a good one. That's a great one. Yeah, you're trying to take a shower in a Japanese lady's house. There you go. All right. Without even knowing it, too. Um, but I've had a lot of those moments in Japan just because there's, a, I, I feel like there they have certain things that they do, like taking their shoes off. And there's a lot of, let me just tell you, I've, there's a lot of mishaps that can, that can go wrong if you're not used to knowing the customs and the, the culture there. Oh, totally. I mean, after living there for two years, we have we could write books about this. <laughs> and, and we still did things. You'd think you'd like pick up on it. And like two years into living there, I was still doing stuff that, you know, people would shake their head at and be like, how could he not know this? But there is, yeah, it's when you're in a completely different culture that has so many customs, traditions, ways of doing things. Um, yeah, you can put your foot in your mouth a lot. You can do a lot of funny stuff. They always make for the greatest travel stories though. Um, what do you have coming up in the pipeline for beautiful booze? Obviously when we're recording this, we're in quarantine and, and also maybe not as much travel on the horizon, but what are your plans for it? What do you have coming up personally and professionally? Well, on August 25th, my book comes out, um, Beautiful Booze, Stylish Cocktails to Make at Home. It's on pre-order now. It's um, me and my business partner. I'm at Beautiful Booze. He's at Little Lane Media. We took all the photos, did all the recipes. It's about over 120 recipes with photos. So that's the biggest thing coming up. Um, and so that's what I've been working a lot on. I've also been thinking about how I can showcase a little bit more behind the scenes of some of the travel stuff in terms of some of the biggest questions I got asked about how do you, because essentially before this happened, I've been living out of my suitcase for five years. So people wanting to understand how, that works. And I wanted to give them a behind the scenes specifically showing my uh, wardrobe that consists of about five items and, and just some of the things I've learned after traveling out of a suitcase for five years that I wasn't able to have the time to do because I was constantly moving. Um, and just, you know, showcasing some of those things that I learned about really putting your money into experiences and being able to get rid of, you know, a, a house that I had being able to get rid of all that stuff and how 
I realized none of that stuff really I would ever really use. And just mm. thinking about, you know, how you spend your time and money. Totally, totally. Well, I want to say thank you, Natalie, so much for joining me today for not only showing the world some fabulous, delicious cocktail recipes and giving us your experiences, but also what you just touched on, showing that you can take a passion, you can make it location independent, even if it is something that people would think, how could I ever do this? I love cocktails. I'm going to become a bartender. How could I ever be location independent? Natalie, you've done it. Like you've said, I've meshed all these passions together and made a path forward. Um, and I think that'll be awesome when you start to show that side of it more because the world needs more people uh, showing that, that there is ways to lead an unconventional life and, and make it work on your own terms if they want to do that. So remind people one more time how they can come get a hold of you and also especially how they can come and grab the book. Yeah, so I am always available on Instagram, and my handle is at Beautiful Booze, and my website is www.beautifulbooze.com. Beautiful Booze is basically all of my handles, so you can come find me there. If you have any questions about my lifestyle or cocktails or need any advice, you can definitely email me or DM me. And the book is available for pre-order. I have a link at Instagram or you can go on Amazon. There's a couple other independent book sites. If you search beautiful booze, stylish cocktails to make at home, the book is available for pre-order now and it hits the shelves on August 25th. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again, Natalie. Guys, we're going to link everything up in the show notes, extrapackofpeanuts.com slash shows. But beautiful booze, very easy to remember. If you forget that, you've probably had too much to drink while listening to this podcast. Uh, beautifulbooze.com and go find Natalie on social and all that good stuff to grab the book. I will be grabbing the book personally as someone who's like a, I don't know what we'd say, Natalie, like getting more and more into cocktails. I'm like a in between a beginner and intermediate i'm trending towards an intermediate level of cocktail knowledge so it'll be perfect for me um so thank you for joining us and for sharing your knowledge appreciate it natalie thank you so much for having me i'm looking forward to hearing this coming out and i loved sharing my journey and passion for cocktails today so thanks for having me awesome thank you everyone for tuning in today for your continued support that makes us the number one rated travel podcast until next time, everyone, happy free travels. I'll show you Paris soon.